Here's the phrase that I use when I talk with others, that you create the personalized work experience for your employees. And that is, that's the holy grail now. That's what we need to focus on. And welcome to Everyday Leadership, a podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Leadership. Today we're going to have some fun. I've got an amazing leader in the house. He's a CEO and co-founder of the Rest Movement. He is a global leader who sits on several boards. I mean, if I start to reel out all the board names, we're going to be here for a very long time. He is an author. A book that by the time this comes out will be released. The book is called Underestimated. A Seals on Life Path to Success, which we're definitely going to talk about as well. And he is he's led on organizations, he's a highly sought of speaker, exec coach. I have Donald Thompson in the house. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. When I said delve into your history, your background, it's so like, diverse, so many different ways that it led me to my natural question, like, what was a, what was a young Donald Thompson like? Because I'm so curious. Yeah. So one of the things that, you know, I learned from my mom is the two big things. One is to always ask the question, why? Right. When information is presented to me, why do you believe the way you believe? If you like a certain sports team, why is that your favorite team? She would always question and force me to think about things more in more depth than just that surface level. And then the second thing that is super important is that you can do and be anything you dream. If you're willing to do the work, if you're willing to put the learning in, and you're willing to bounce back from any setbacks. And so you just, young man, have to choose. And so as I embarked on different points in my career, I was able to have the confidence to chase my interests and see if I could monetize the things that I enjoyed doing, right? So I could create the financial goals for sure, but also enjoy the path and the journey in doing it. I've touched a lot of different things over uh, my career, but they've all evolved because of having that confidence that nothing is beyond me if I'm willing to put in the work and learn the skills. So did you always have a sense of direction of what that would look like? And I'm going to add a part to that because even that statement of like putting the work, dealing with setbacks, that's learned behavior. Because we can work hard a lot of times, we don't actually get the rewards for it, or we can deal with setbacks and we don't know what's learned from it and we just get knocked back for it. So how do you begin to learn and develop that mindset to be able to turn those words of wise words into action in experiences that you had? Yeah, that's a great question. And I appreciate the depth of it. I'm the son of a football coach and American football. So I have to preface it. We're talking to, <laughs> we're talking to a, global, a global audience, right? American football. And so in American football, it is a highly strategic, but also a highly physical sport. And you have to be able to get up when you're knocked down. And no matter how good you are, there's somebody bigger, stronger, faster, and you will get knocked down. And so what that learned by being around sports and athletics is that team orientation, that toughness to push through and persevere. But the other thing is that you have to be willing to be agile against the competition in sports and in life. And so to your question, I didn't have a clear path, but I had a couple of things that were guiding for me. Number one is I wanted to make enough money that I wasn't governed by money. It didn't necessarily mean millions and millions of dollars, but I wanted to have choices. And I knew at an early age, as my parents were growing in their careers, if you have less money, you have fewer choices. And I wanted to have more choices, number one. And then number two, I had to figure out a way that creating business opportunities could align with things that I did well. I was always good at talking to people, even at a young age. I was always good at making friends because as a son of a football coach in America, if you win, you stay. If you lose, you get fired. 
And so I moved around a lot because sometimes my dad's teams won and sometimes they lost. And when they lose, you have a U-Haul truck and you have to move to a different city in a different organization. And so I, I got very good at an early age at making new friends in new places. It was tough as a kid, but as I became an adult, it became a skill that I've used very much to find the commonalities in people and find ways forward with people from all different walks of life, different nationalities, different ethnicities, all those different things. And that's been a real help to me. But no, I did not have a clear path, but I had some guiding things that motivated me. I signed a scholarship to play uh, college football at East Carolina University. And I like to tell people that I was a practice team All-American. So all of my highlights were in practice. So I was good enough to get a scholarship, but I wasn't good enough to be a starter on the team and to play a lot. And so my learnings from the American football was about that teamwork, that training, that toughness. But I was meant to apply those learnings in a business context. And so my story shifted away from the athletic field to the business field. But those learnings have stayed with me. One thing you mentioned earlier on was around knowing or having enough financial wealth. How do you know what is enough? How do you decide and determine what enough is for you? Because even as you get older and older, you might have a family, you might have more responsibilities, you might want to invest in businesses. But how do you kind of determine that barrier, that boundary for yourself of knowing when enough is enough and stop chasing? Yeah, what I would say... I'll answer it in two parts. For me, the financial goal and gain is the secondary element or reward to building businesses and teams of value. And so what I continue to chase is building businesses and teams of value. For me, what is enough, I certainly want to take care of my family, my kids. But at this stage in my career, I also want to create the ability to give more and be stronger in causes that I work with. But early in my career, enough was where I didn't have to sweat my monthly bills. It's phases in your life, right? And I remember the times where I was behind on everything, right? Like all of these letters, right? Past due, all of these letters late, like, and just in the hustle. And how do you keep a good attitude when you're not making it, right? And how do you know you're not making it? When people are calling you all the time because you're late on your obligations, you're not winning at that point, right? And so what I decided was enough there is when I was out of debt. And that didn't mean big house, big car. That meant car that was paid for. I remember when I got the first title deed to a car that I owned instead of making payments, that pride of owning versus paying the bank is something that motivated me. So what is enough? That's different for different folks in our audience. But what I will tell you is that the principle of not trying to keep up with others is something that is very powerful for me. Your enough needs to be personal to you and your family and your goals. And that's something that allowed me to be comfortable with what I was chasing and not comparing it to Joe or not comparing it to Julian or Andrea. What is enough for me is what motivates me and my family and taking care of my kids. Another example of enough is when my kids were ready for college. I didn't want them to have to worry about it. I wanted to be able to watch this, be able to get my kids a nice car that was safe, pay for their college, and money to help them for their first home. That was enough. If I could do that as a parent for each of my four kids, then I had given them a powerful start and they got to chase the next mountain on their own. So those are things that were enough to me. It wasn't the money the money's sake. It was the ability to uplift and grow and do things for the people that I love. Powerful driver and motivator. I guess I'm curious when I listen to you talking just today, but in general around the cultures that you've led and even being a board member and different things like that. How did that definition that you've just broken down right now of recognizing what's important to you as in what is not, how did that influence you when it comes to that triple, triple bottom line that you talk about, which is people, planet, and profit. Yeah. One of the things that, and I'll start with profit, then I'll go to people in the planet. And the reason I start with profit is sometimes people have a mixed view of money, but everything we want to do in this world requires money. 
take care of family, give to your church or religious organization, be able to further the education of your kids and family. None of these things, by and large, the appropriate amount of health care and insurance and different things, they all require money. So you have to figure out how to live a profitable life so that you can check that box and give you the example and the opportunity to focus more on people. I have a lot of folks that focus on people, but if you don't have any money, the money changes your focus off of people. If you have a little bit of extra money, you can actually focus more on growing people and being a value add to their lives. And then planet is something that I've really started to think more about lately. That wasn't something I cared anything about my first 40 years of my life, right? I, I, just didn't, I just didn't think about it. But when we think about climate change, when we think about the way that we misuse resources in our world, it's now affecting all of us. And so we have to have consideration about things that are sustainable in regards to the environment and how it affects our business and our lives. Because it's important for all of those things to work together, that triple bottom line, people, profit, planet, and they all integrate very well together. Do you prioritize any of them, any particular order or DA, and I don't have any hands for you? I do have an order, and the order allows impact in the others. I prioritize early in my life the financial stability and growth. Because that, to me, is the driver for you to be able to give impact to the other areas. Now, that doesn't mean prioritizing one is to the detriment of the other. It just means in your life, you can have certain levels of sequence in terms of those priorities. And I remember talking with my daughter, Sierra. I have three daughters and one son. And she was maybe nine years old at the time. And I had to explain to her why I couldn't be at every single one of her basketball games. I could be at some of them. I could take her to practice. But sometimes I had to travel for work and I was out of town. But the way she understood it was now fast forward. to now she's 17. She's applied and is accepted to the school of her choice. And she says, Dad, do I have a college fund? And I said, no. She said, I don't have a college fund. How am I going to pay for college? And I said, come into my office. I had a little home office. And I reached in and I said, what is this? And she said, well, that's a checkbook. I said, this is your college fund. And the times where I were not able to go to every single game, where I missed a couple of things, so that you can go to school and all you have to focus on is making good grades, having fun, and becoming a better person. Because now this checkbook is giving you the freedom to focus. She said, do I have to fill out financial aid? I said, nope. I said, we did this as a family that we sacrificed together, and now you can reap the rewards. And so by focusing on the financial, I was able to give back to my daughter, Sierra, and launch her career. Now she's graduated from college. She's got a powerful job in Atlanta. She's in the video production business that she loves. And she understands and appreciates that financial focus. Now she's running on a budget and different things to now meet the goals and dreams she has for her family in the future. And we're passing that down. And so to answer your question and not to ramble, the finances being first is not because I didn't care for people. It's so that if I get that handled first, I can be more powerful with people and for people, more powerful with the environment, for the environment. And that's just the way I prioritize them early on in my career as I've grown. What you just talked about there reminds me of a lot of startups and scale-ups and their founders in particular and the difficulty that they can have where, especially nowadays, it's like, it's a business, somebody to make money, but we don't want the money to be the main focus. We want the product to be the main focus. We want our values, what we stand for, to be the main focus. And they have a difficulty, shall I say, between balancing the fact we need to make money and the other things that come alongside of that. And I know you're obviously you're an angel investor, you're someone advising a lot of boards. How do you advise those who are coming up? especially with new young companies to, to navigate that and recognize the fact that it is important to 
make money and prioritize people as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, my niche, if you will, when I'm doing executive coaching is helping CEOs and business leaders balance empathy and economics. And that's really what you're describing. And it is a tough balance. But leaders are meant to do tough things. Right? That's what we sign up for. So the number one thing I tell leaders is, let's not let each other off the hook for doing both. For having an empathetic and empowering workplace that is driven by some powerful economic goals as well. And so the number one thing that I describe is, what are the types of people that you bring into your organization? And that's really critical because people that want autonomy is great, but you also have people that understand autonomy in the workplace and accountability so that we don't get so out of balance with empathy, with autonomy, that we don't do the things we're accountable to the business for, that we always look at both because that's something that you build into the DNA with who you hire and why you hire them for roles, number one. Number two, it's super important that you're building a business that really fits a powerful need in the market. Because if you're just building a a business that is around social good, it then becomes more like a nonprofit, and it's harder to create the monetary success you need to actually take care of your team. So you have to make sure that the business you're building is not a undercover nonprofit, right? And that's another thing that people kind of get get twisted, right? So it's important that you're building something that can have that true value. And then the third thing that I think that I help leaders with is thinking long-term, even while you're dealing with short-term challenges of growth. Because what you don't want to do is make short-term decisions that affect your culture that you can't recover from. And let me give you an example. Let's say you have a high-octane sales professional that's bringing in the numbers, but they're a bad fit for the company. That's one of the tougher, empathetic economic decisions. How you handle those decisions says a lot about the company you are and will be. And so as a leader, you've got to create an environment where even your top revenue-producing people need to subscribe to the culture that you're trying to grow. And that's really where it becomes, are you really about this social enterprise, this social good that you say, or are you as the leader just about the dollars? And how you make those decisions are gonna show the true nature of what you're doing. There's nothing wrong if you're gonna say, our business is for profit, that's the focus, that's the bottom line. But when you start to talk about empathy and economics, You've got to live the walk that you're talking. And that comes down to the daily decisions you make about who you hire, who you promote, and who you let stay. It's a, it's a major issue right now where a lot of people in organizations are frustrated because you come into a space in an organization with certain values that you think this is what we are about. And then you know, start to see leaders exhibiting different behaviors or taking different actions which are not aligned to their overall behavior. And that can cause a lot of frustration, which is sort of play out, especially enlarged in during the pandemic, the big res- resignation, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of people have come back to work, but it's still there where a lot of people are frustrated coming around the fact that the authenticity doesn't seem to be there anymore with a lot of actions that organizations are taking. How do you begin to help people to, to understand a lot more around the economics and the profit and being able to make that call because you're never going to be an organization where it's just, unless you're in a solely not-for-profit, you're never going to be an organization where it hasn't, doesn't have to make profitable decisions, especially if it's either got a VC attached to it or it's got shareholders attached to it. The market's always going to dictate, but yet it's a, it's a struggle that I've seen a lot of leaders deal with because they're like, I know what my people want, but yet those who are in a sense I'm reporting into want something different. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to navigate. That's a powerful question. I want to restate something that you said just a moment ago, profitable decisions. And that's really the core of it, right? And when you think about a profitable decision, our minds naturally go towards profit loss revenue. But a profitable decision 
is how do you deal with those communication disconnects and those value misalignments in the company and not sweeping them under the rug. The biggest thing I tell people is problems don't get better by themselves, right? That means that if we see a disconnect in the organization as a leader, right, that means we have to be a part of bringing those parties together and creating that solution space. We have to own that as a part of our CEO leadership narrative, right? Is that the interpersonal disconnects are a part of our CEO agenda. And that's where when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, our firm, the diversity movement, most of the time people think about race, gender, sexual orientation, right? But there's generational diversity. There is cultural diversity based on what part of the country, if you're part of the world, excuse me, if your company is, is global in its footprint. There is disability and inclusion. And here's the thing where we get real practical. How do you give and receive feedback? How do you handle conflict within the organization? Most people, when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, people don't feel belonging in one fail swoop. It's one conversation at a time that builds a trend for how people feel. So when I'm counseling CEOs, I let them know something very simple, whether they like it or not, when experience it or not, believe me or not, is that people in underrepresented groups as a collective are now the majority. So your brand had better understand how to talk to people in the LGBTQ community. Your brand had better be able to speak to women of color. Your brand had better be able to speak to the Latin A population. Your brand has to speak to a broader group. So therefore, you as an executive cannot financially ignore the soft skills inside your business and the feel that your brand represents every day. And the business economics need to drive your focus on empathy because you're going to either learn it, address it, improve it, or somebody that does is going to beat you and take your people. <laughs> like, it's, like, I mean, you know, you, you can listen to me or not listen to me, but if you're, you're going to lose out. Right. And so you can either learn it now and make it a offensive opportunity. Right. Or you can deal with it in four or five years when you're no longer the CEO because the board had to make a tough decision that they needed different leadership. And that's just the reality of it because of the demographic shift and the way that culture is. I'll give a very specific example 70% of job seekers look at the diversity, equity, inclusion footprint of a company before they go to work for the company. So if you look at that number, that means that as an organization, if you're trying to improve retention, if you're trying to recruit the best and brightest, you have to think empathetically about your company and your brand to stay relevant. So I just communicate to leaders in a language they understand. Sometimes it's financial, sometimes it's feeling. I create that communication path in a language that leader needs to understand. If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's the podcast worth listening to, which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. Was it through the sports that's helped you improve your own personal communication style? Or has it been being a father or husband or whatever it is has helped you in your journey? The sports did not help me with my communication style. It actually hurt me because I was, I was that early in my career, I was that driver. I was that do it again. I was that highly focused, highly committed leader, right? And everybody doesn't relate to that, right? So what happened to me, and this was maybe 10 years ago now, working with a business coach. And I'd met some success. I was doing well and different things. And he said, Don, here's how you need to think about being a more empathetic leader and a more inclusive leader. How successful could you be if you related to more people and more people could relate to you? I was like, whoa, 
Because as a business leader, I don't want to leave opportunity out there on the table. That fear of loss, that fear of not having opportunity. And so I, I began to work on my communication skills. I began to work on my active listening skills to really start to understand that motivation behind why people come to work every day. I started to really think about, as a leader, should I talk with the group and the team before I make a stance? Because no matter what, as a leader, if you make a statement of where, what you feel about an idea, it changes the communication in the group. Because people want to please the boss, they want to please the leader. So I had to learn how to ask more questions before I made statements. But to answer your question, the sports did not help me with that at all. It helped me with the toughness, the teamwork, but I had to unlearn a lot of things. Because if you think about sports, right, the coach is the boss. The, the head coach is the boss. And you do what the coach asks you to do. Coach says, run again, you go run again. In this business climate and environment, people want to know why. People want to know what's in it for them. People want to understand and be communicated in a personalized way. And that's something that over the last 10 years of my career, I've become a lot better at. And one of the reasons I can relate to a lot of executives that struggle there is I was on that side of the high octane driver leader. And I've made that transition over a decade. And I'm still working and still improving, but I'm better than I was. And I'm proud of that. I think it's one of those things where that was a work in progress. But it starts with that realization of, I need to improve. Because it's interesting when you say it's like 10 years ago is when business coach spoke to you. But prior to that, you've been successful. You've been, you've been successful in, in what you do and in who you are. Yet you still had to have that called out to you like, well, there's still certain things that you're missing. And it was that willingness to listen that really, really stood out to me. Because there are times when our ego can get in the way because we can say that, well, you say that to me. I've had all this success. I didn't get to where I got to. I must have great listening skills. So you had a willingness to actually take that feedback on board and do something with it. I love that you're bringing us that way. I consider myself a competitive learner. And I love learning from people. I'm used to being coached. This is where the athletic background helped me because I was used to being coached. So I was, when, I, when I heard that from that business leader, I understood it. I thought about it. I reflected on it and was willing to do the work, right, to create some change. But it's difficult because when you're successful at any level, right, like ego creeps in and like you're, you know, like you've done a few things and why do I need to change? And another way that I described it to a person that I'm working with, extremely successful executive, right? And I mean, global business. And he was like, ah, I'm doing fine. And like, well, obviously you're not if your board says that you need to talk to me, right? But successful on paper. And the leader was telling me all the things they'd done and accomplished and why they were resisting. And I said, give me some space. Let me give you this phrase. He gave me some space. I said, you're talking about how you won in the past. I'm talking about how we're going to win the future. And it got real quiet on the phone. He said, that makes a lot of sense. And the future demands that we treat people differently in the workplace than we did in the past. And we're not going backwards. Hybrid work was always there the last 20, 30 years with technology and different things, but it wasn't a standard operating procedure, right? Until post-pandemic and during the pandemic. Now, if you have a business and you say, I want people in the office five days a week, they will not work for you. They just, they're just like, no, thank you. <laughs> See you later, right? Because same money or more money or different things are giving people flexibility. So you have to win the future and change the way you're thinking for the future employees you're trying to build and use your past successes as a guide, but not as a mandate for how you will lead in the future. There are some things that I've done in the past that have worked, but if I'm going to win the future, I have to be a leader that innovates, that learns, that listens, right? And then determines what things I can add to my repertoire to be better. And so when I talked about winning the future, I started to get this leader's attention. And we started to move from the past and we started to learn the things that we need to do to win the future. I think the employee experience is now at the center of the enterprise. And organizations, large and small, have to think about the sentiment, the feeling, the productivity of the individual employee. And I think that's going to have a long window and a long run. 
And so now I think the future of work from that premise is all about how you create a flexible environment, but still have corporate structure, right? How do you create an environment where an employee can feel comfortable with a hybrid work environment, comfortable working on different teams for different projects, for example, that agility, while you still have the structure of here's how we need to do it to keep our brand consistency. Here's how we build products that creates uniqueness for us. This is how we win in the enterprise. So the future of work is taking the best of the gig economy and how contractors feel, the security of having that corporate umbrella, and how do you meld those two things together so that you create, and here's the phrase that I use when I talk with others, that you create the personalized work experience for your employee base. And that is, that's the holy grail now. That's what we need to focus on. And when you focus on that, that doesn't mean you magically get there tomorrow. It doesn't mean you agree with everything that we read in Harvard Business Review or McKinsey or whatever. It means that you are now looking and talking with your employees with a different listening ear because you actually plan to implement some of the things they need. You're not listening just to appease them. You're listening to understand with your top performers how to create an environment where more top performers want to grow and stay. How do you create an environment in your company where people don't have to leave the organization to try things new, that they have the freedom to move between departments and divisions so that you retain the talent in the whole versus people thinking they have to leave the enterprise to create new experience? Creating that personalized work experience is really important. And that's where that thinking of HR as a compliance mechanism, you have to think about it as people and productivity and passion. And so the business still has to operate profitably. Business still has to have structure, sure. But within that structure, there has to be enough agility to keep the dreams and hopes of your top performers on your team. As you were talking, I was a smiling because I'm so aligned to you there because that personalized experience, even though it requires a lot and a massive change in, in, in mentality and mindset but it goes back into recognizing that people are complex and therefore has different needs but if you can learn to create the culture and the communication that allows you to, to understand what those needs are and you provide that personalized experience you're going to get the best out of your people and it naturally goes back into that feeling of when we talk about DIB of even belonging and, and being seen because now you're seen, now you're understood, now that container's been created for you, and therefore you feel I can pour out my best and do my best work in this environment. But what we've had over the years has just been that one-size-fits-all approach, which hasn't worked for a lot of people. That's exactly right. No, I agree with you wholeheartedly. One of the things we've done in our small organization, my, my new business, we're about 20 people. So we're growing, but we're a small emerging business, uh, my latest firm. We hired our first full-time people operations leader. And if you look at the startup culture numbers, right, it's about 40 people that used to need full-time HR, right? From 10 to 15, you'd have kind of part-time different things. But I had to look at the future of work. And because of the impact we want to make in the working lives of our people and our team, we had to make that investment earlier to show our team our care and our commitment their well-being at work. And one of the things our, our new leader did is they went through the entire organization and did stay interviews and just really talked with people about what's working, what's not, how are you doing? And what was powerful from doing that is we ended up with a list of four or five items from each of our team members. And then when we looked across the list of the things that were same, it was easy to invest in the changes we needed to make that were consistent across the team members. Number one. Number two, in our follow-up meetings with each of the team members, we got high marks as a team by showing in a meaningful way that we care what's on their mind. Even if we couldn't address everything all at once, some things we could, some things we said, hey, we're a little bit small for this. Maybe we can get to this in 2020. But the dialogue and the documentation of that dialogue communicated our commitment to being better. And that was the overarching feedback that I got from our team members. And it's encouraging me to even want to do more. 
because the feedback, even the critical feedback, came from a good place. It's here's how we can make the organization better. Here's something I'm struggling with, but I want to know how to work on it with you. And I was really pleased with, and anytime you get critique, right, it's, oh, you know, because you're, you're, you're trying really hard as a leader, but you can't get better if you don't know. And the one thing I shared with my team that was their responsibility is I want to be a better leader, but I'm not a mind leader. So if you don't communicate in some way through survey, through talking with our people ops, through talking with your manager, through a cup of coffee with me, if you don't communicate in some way where you're at, I can't be responsible for reading your mind. But I can be responsible for if you outreach in some way to reach back, to communicate, let's have a dialogue on it. And so those are some things that we're doing to try to walk the talk that we're speaking. And we're a work in progress, the word that you used before, but man, we're working at it. And we're working on trying to be better. One of the things that you spent some focus on has been around angel investing. You've invested about seven figures in. Why angel investing? Why is it your area you're very passionate about? So I've put some money in VC funds that are you know, professional venture investors and different things. But I reserved some dollars for angel investing so that I could bet on people that maybe didn't have that traditional background to bet on some businesses with a little bit more influence, right? That I could work with the CEO and the leader to help them grow. And so I wanted to create some opportunity for those that might not be ready for that venture space, right? But have a good foundation of an idea, have a good two or three people to start and need a little bit of money to make that first prototype, a little bit of money to build out that first marketing plan. And it's been fun. It's something that I enjoy doing because I remember, you know, the beginnings of starting businesses and it's scary. And that, that first $25,000 check sometimes is not all the money you'll ever need. But it's the confidence money that you need that keeps you going as an entrepreneur. And so I, I enjoy that process very much. I'm not, I'm doing that a little bit less now. I typically don't do that while I'm in the mode, do it as much while I'm running a business day to day because I find that I get a little bit sloppy on the betting <laughs> when I'm doing both. But I love all aspects of supporting entrepreneurs. Now that you're in that, you're focused primarily on, on your business or core business right now. What are some of the lessons that I guess you're, you're taking from either your board experience, your engineering investing experience, your entrepreneurship experience, generally speaking? What's some of the lessons that you've learned over the years that you're planning to, to your current business? Thank you for the question. And there are several. So, <laughs> and I'm happy to. <laughs> and here's, here's one that people have heard before, but you need to, we all need to take to heart. Everything takes longer than you think. And a lot of times our projections that we pitch to investors that we're telling ourselves that our spreadsheets magically show this amazing growth in five years, you have to have a worst case, most likely, and best case scenario in everything that you're doing. And that's the nugget. You have to think about your business in those three planes. Am I on my best case track, my most likely track, or my worst case? And you need to be able to survive and grow in your worst case scenario. And that's number one that I've learned in terms of your, your thinking. I think it's super important because a lot of times as leaders, when we're out pitching for investment, when we're recruiting team members, when we're selling our story and vision to clients, we can believe what we're selling and not manage to reality. You have to be able to sell the future and manage to the reality. That's where entrepreneurs sometimes get stuck. And that's a lesson that I've had to learn. You've got to sell the future, right? You've got to manage to the reality. And that's number one that I've learned. The second thing that I think is really critical as a leader is identifying what your superpowers are and then hiring around you, right? Those superpowers that you need that you don't have. And that's where you have to have an honest conversation with yourself as a leader and say, like, what's my role in the business? Put aside my title, right? What's my role in the business? For me, I'm very good with business development, with partnerships. I'm very good with sales and marketing with that first, second, and third product that's not quite ready yet, right? That you got to get out in the market and you got to tweak your sales message in different things. 
I'm not amazing with finance. I'm not amazing with content development, pure marketing. So I've had to hire people around my skill set so that we could grow an amazing company together. And the diversity movement, I'll tell you from a startup standpoint, with very little funding, right, initially, we've grown from zero to a couple million dollars in business over the last couple of years, from zero to 100 clients. Because of that ability to focus on how do you get an emerging business off the ground, that's my superpower. When the business gets about 50, 75 employees, when the business gets above 10 million in revenue, that's when I'll probably find somebody to kind of take on the work for me and get it to the next phase. Because my superpower is that zero to 10 million. I've seen that. I've done that. That's what I'm really good at. When it's not really all together yet and you're trying to kind of build it from clay. And then as the business becomes more operational and you need to look at scale, I know that my skill set is not different there. One of my companies was bought by an Asian Indian firm out of Pune. And they're a billion-dollar company, 10,000-plus employees. I wasn't the best employee for a 10,000-person organization. I was great for the transition, right? And I made some great friends and loved the people that I worked with. I was treated amazingly well. But because I know who I am as an entrepreneur, I knew and they knew, right? It was going to be an 18-month transition thing, and then we would miss each other well, right? You have to know who you are is the second thing that, that I've learned. So number one, you have to sell the future and you have to manage to the now. And then number two is you have to know who you are so that you can build the right team around your skills. Sell the future and know the reality is a um, concept that I trust when I'm aligned to. I have a, I have a background in, in finance, did a lot of strategy work, so I'll be aligned to that. But the interesting thing, a lot of advice nowadays from well-meaning business leaders is around always have a plan A, never a plan B, because a plan B means you have a plan for plan A. I don't agree with that. Hey, listen, here's who says that. Here's who says that. That's somebody who got $20 million in bet. That's not my, I don't get to think like that. That's not my reality, right? Here's my reality. No one's coming to save you. So you better have an A plan, B plan, C plan, because no one's coming to save you and your team. And you better figure out how to make it with your plan A, B, or C, but you're going to make your payroll every month and you're going to grow. That, that's my mindset. And so I, I'm not saying that other mindset of don't have a, I'm not saying that's wrong. I haven't been able to live that. Nobody's given me $20 million in BC so I can burn through the money and, ah, oh, well, plan A didn't work it. Oh, well, I'll just, I'll just go do something else. That hasn't been my luxury, right? I would love for, you know, if anybody that's listening, you know, wants to be, cut me a $20 million check, I will focus <laughs> only on plan A. <laughs> but, yo, man, that's not, nah, man. Oh, that... No, nah, man, I, I don't know. That's not my thing. I haven't experienced that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I love this conversation because it also shows how important it is to put things into context and to put things into the different lived experiences of the people and what you're listening to and where that comes from. Because we don't all call from privilege. We, and that background is very, very different to our come up. Therefore, we need to be careful of what we're filtering, what we're listening to. And even that point that you made around um, you knowing yourself and knowing that I can build up into 10 million and it's just to someone else. I love that point because one thing I've seen a lot with the founders I've worked with is it's hard to let go. Like that's, that's your baby. Like that's, that's the word you hear. Look, this is about baby. I can't. And I've seen people take it to like eight, nine figures and it's like, it's great, but you should step back. But they struggle with letting go, especially if that's the first thing you've built and then it's blown up. So how did you learn to have that self-awareness of, I can take the 10 million, I can give it to someone else, and then step back and go to something else? So there's a couple of things, and, and some are skills you can learn, and, but a lot of it has to do with my personality and my background. I enjoy coaching and mentoring people. 
And one of the superpowers is getting really, really talented people to come work with me and partner with me. And the way I do that is I create unlimited space for people to grow based on their skill set. So if I have a strong team, then I expect that I'm within my team is a future leader of the business. And I don't want to get in the way of that. That's number one, because I, I get joy from growing people and I want to see them grow. So I'll give an example, a very specific example. So before the diversity movement, I was running a digital marketing agency called Walk West. I invested in that business at 300000 It is now a multi-million dollar digital marketing agency. We were on the Inc. 5000 three, four years in a row. There is a new CEO. She's a woman of color. Her name is Abba Bowers. I am so proud that I was able to see her come in as a director and move to a vice president. And now she is the CEO of this growing firm. I'm on the board now. I'm the chairman of the board, but it's now her ship to run. And I get joy from being a small part in doing that. A good friend of mine, Greg Boone, who runs a digital marketing firm, they're more on the technology side and they work with the digital infrastructure for large, large e-commerce corporations. Greg started with me as an engineer. He grew into a VP of engineering. He is now the CEO in his own right and just moved, flipped his company to Emphasis about two years ago. I had a small part to play in that. That gives me pride. So when I'm growing the diversity movement, and in a few years from now, you see someone else take over, that's my win. So I don't view it as not letting go of my baby. I view it as my kids have grown up. And now my role is different. And now they get a chance to do it better, do it bigger take it in a different direction or a bigger direction. And so my goals are different. And so because my goals is to grow people, I can find something else to do. I'm not tied emotively to this one thing. I'm tied emotively to helping other people grow and be better. And so that's why it's easier for me because of my mindset in building a business. I, am, I will be happy in two years, a year, when my watch is done. Right when I am completed with my journey with the diversity movement and someone else to take it even further. And that's exciting to me. And it also helps me recruit the best and brightest because they know that they're not going to be held back because of my ambitions and holding them down. I, my ambition is to grow theirs. And because of that relationship, I do pretty well in our market with recruiting really talented people. Because in that case, my ego is in check. Right. In some cases, you know, we all have work to do. But in that case, I'm pretty well aligned with what high achievers want to do and be a part of. I was on an interview this morning with a potential leader for our new company this morning. And he said, the compliment he gave, he said, let me tell you why you're in the top three of my new companies that I may want to go to. No CEOs, even of companies your size, are sitting down with people in this process. But I sit with people that I think could be rising stars. And I wanted to give the candidate that compliment. I wanted to answer their questions directly. What do they expect? What do I expect? So that we enter this new relationship. If this candidate chooses us, if we choose them, that we're aligned in that purpose and that promise that we're making to each other. And those little things that you can do as a CEO to separate yourself from other companies, I think more CEOs should sit with candidates sooner in the interview process. Why? Because it helps you understand what the market is saying and doing and hearing. But number two, usually the decision to go with your company versus another is not this wide gap. There's these small reasons why someone picks one over the other. I want to make sure I know what those small reasons are and I can address them real time. And as the CEO of the business, I can address them real time if I can get in the conversation with so that might be a little bit too much secret sauce. I don't know if I did. Bring it away. Bring it away. But that's, that's dope. Well, those are some of the things that, that I think about a little bit differently than most. When you say I create the space for people to grow like exponentially into and then taking the time to meet people and to hear what's going on. I mean, that data is so important. Like, even if people work for you that don't, you can hear what's really going on and you're not so, you're not disconnected, which is what tends to happen a lot of times. You're so far removed, you don't really know what's going on in the ground. 
by sitting down and hearing people, you, you learn, but for the other candidate, it feel, wow, okay, this is different. This person really is taking that time. I know they're busy, but they're taking time to do this. So if they're doing this in the interview process, that's potentially how they work in the company because they're, they're modeling right from the start. So it's not that I come in and I see something different. So that's such a powerful move that so many people are missing. So. Yeah, I appreciate it. I like, I'm taking notes because I like some of the phrases that you use, right? And as we're talking, people are complex. Like, and that is, it's just truth, right? And then what's your powerful move, right? Like, what's the thing that you can do as an executive, as a leader to have that impact, right? And it's not always super expensive or super glam- glamorous, right? It is sometimes some very simple things that, that you can do. I'll share another that, that I've learned. When you compliment people, be specific, right? John's doing a good job. John did an outstanding job with the marketing presentation that we needed to show to our investors about how we're going to spend and execute our marketing. Thanks, John. Be specific because that lets the organization know not that you're watching, but that you are observant for things that are going good, that you understand the value that they're bringing to their jobs. I had one of our videographers because we deliver a lot of content on DEI that organizations can drop into their LMS and different things. And so we're doing a lot with that. We've built a micro video platform for DEI education. And so I had our videographer come in and I pulled him into a meeting I was in. I sent him on Slack. I said, come in here for a minute. He had created a very simple change in the process that reduced the editing time of the videos we were doing by like 40%. When you're doing hundreds of micro videos, that matters. And so I wanted to let him know we appreciate it. I wanted to let him know publicly that I saw the changes in the work that he did, right? And so it's important when you're giving feedback and learning as an executive, but the way you compliment and being specific with what people are doing is a way to build credibility and trust as you're learning and growing within your organization. Because people are motivated by money, motivated by opportunity for sure, but they also want to know that you care about what they're doing and that you appreciate what they're doing. And being specific is a helpful way to do that. As a father, you talked about how you had that conversation, like the door and she was young and you went around. You had, you had four kids. Did you find it hard, even though you knew what you were doing was for your family, did you find it hard not to be around all the time and to be working and providing all that kind of stuff? And so how did you, how did you handle that inside? So one of the things my mentor Grant Willard shared with me is don't miss anything important. And so if the kids were being recognized at school, if they were having a career day and parents were coming in, if they were doing something that was super meaningful, I talked to my kids about what events meant the most to them. Right. And so even though I had a lot going on, I made sure that I didn't miss any of those magic moments on a consistent basis. Right. But I did teach and coach my kids that every single practice is not a magic moment. (laughs) Right? Like, listen, I'm not going hypocrite. I had to talk to us and listen, every time you put on the uniform to go, that's not a magic moment. Right? But there are certain games that are more important to my kids than others. And so we talked about this. And so I made them a part of the team. And I'll give one example. I... My kids wanted new furniture in our bonus room. And so we had bought a house and different things and, and hadn't finished everything. And I said, all right, if we make this goal and our quarterly goal, we're going to get new stuff in our bonus room. And this was years ago, but we missed that goal. And so we did not get the furniture in the bonus room. Every day for the next quarter, my son woke up and said, dad, did you sell anything today? Every day. He said, he was so mad. He was like, <laughs> right? And the next quarter, we met our goal and we, and we got it. But I made them a part of our success and our missteps because they had to understand how I was taking care of our family financially. And it was a cool thing to do. But back to your question, I made sure that I was present in the key moments, but I gave myself space as a parent and a father for some of the mundane moments. 
And sometimes parents think they have to be superhuman. I'll give another example. I only had my kids in two activities each, right? Because if you think about growing a family, man, you can be a taxi service, right, for kids. And you're just everywhere, right? I made them choose. Now, does that make me a bad father? But if you're going to do basketball and this, you can't do basketball, karate, badminton, bowling league, chess club. Like, you got to pick. And by teaching them to do that, they picked the things that they wanted to be into at the time. My oldest daughter was into theater and singing and different things. I had a couple that were into sports. But if you pick two things, the family can rally around those two things. And so those are a couple of things with kids on the way through and earlier in my career that helped me kind of manage and go from there. Love that. Wise words of wisdom, man. And that integration of bringing the kids along that journey with the goal setting as well. I was like, man, I just want to, I want, I want to shut my kids up. I'm going to achieve that. Like, <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good driver for sure. <laughs> Live your quotes. That's the name of the newsletter that you need to subscribe to. Go on www.everydayleadership.co.uk, subscribe to Live Your Quotes. It's a bi-weekly newsletter that comes out with a quote with some information on how I'm looking at that quote, how that relates to my life to make it more real and authentic and come alive for you. As well as bits and pieces, it might be books I'm reading, it might be some other content I'm tapping into, and some bits and pieces around the podcast. It's a nice, short, succinct newsletter, which I know you're going to enjoy. But to enjoy it, you need to subscribe to it. So again, if you go to the podcast website, www.everydayleadershippodcast.co.uk, you'll be able to get access to Leave Your Quote newsletter. Now let's get back into the episode. Last one, how do you define leadership? Oh, gosh. So how do I define leadership? Leadership is a relationship. You cannot lead people that you do not have a powerful relationship with. You can manage people, right? Because people will do what the boss says. They'll do for a paycheck. They'll, you know, fear and command and control and different things. But leadership is a relationship because now we have to figure out how to create a new lift together. We have to create an environment to where I'm really looking at your personalized learning style, looking at your goals, your motivation, and incorporating that into how we can create the best performance for you and for the company. So for me, leadership is a relationship. And the more that we dig into the depth of our relationships, the better we can lead people. And the better we can create that personalized work experience because we know what we expect from one another. And without that relationship, we're usually dealing in the superficial kind of corporate speak. But when we have a relationship, we can kind of get real and talk about what's working for each of us and what we each need to improve. I had a review, and I give feedback all the time, but we had an annual review with one of my leaders. And we talked about one another's communication styles as an opportunity for us to be better together in the next year. And it was a great conversation. It was a candid conversation because we had missed one another on a couple things throughout the year. And so we acknowledged those things and it wasn't a finger pointing session, but we deepened the relationship by being truthful about how each of us communicate and receive information and our responses to that, right? And by having that dialogue and strengthening that relationship, I'm looking even more forward with working with this leader in the years to come. And so leadership is a relationship so you can have real talk, that can return into real action and behaviors that can turn into real results. It's that fountain of knowledge, loads and loads and loads of experiences coming through just in this interview alone. And you can see that there's just so much more to come, which is exciting to actually hear. Whether you talk, the way you're so full of like, doing this now, and then I know what's going to come next. For me, that excites me. And that actually inspires me like, man, there's, the sky, is, the sky is the limit in a sense. That you keep on pushing, you keep on growing, you keep on experiencing new chapters in your life and constantly on learning, relearning, and having the great people around you who are also going to elevate you and push you as well as you're pouring into them as well. So it's been so great just to hear some of what you had to share. And what's the best place that people can tap into the work and the different amazing things that you get involved with? Yeah, thank you for that space. So LinkedIn is a platform that I enjoy. 
Uh, it is still about business communication and sharing ideas. And, and I really like that very much. So LinkedIn, please connect. And then donaldthompson.com. And you can get information on my book, executive coaching, things of that nature. But either one of those places, if you reach out, I'll reach back. And all those points will be in the show notes. So you can definitely hear more, Donald. But just appreciate your time today. And I love this conversation. It's been fun. <laughs> it's, been, it's been really, really good. Thanks for having me. me. I really appreciate it. The leadership. See you next. While you're still recovering from that amazing conversation, let me give you a quick preview of what we got coming up next week. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. In any company, people want to be seen and heard and valued. 